Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody and welcome back to new books in latin american studies i'm pamela fuentes the host of the channel today we'll be talking to dr Catherine a sloan about her new book death in the city suicide and the social imaginary in modern mexico Catherine sloan welcome to the show thank you so much for having me pamela Catherine, i wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself Sure. I am a professor of history at the university of arkansas and also the associate dean for humanities Um, I came to the university in 2004, and it's kind of a second career for me after being an environmental activist for Greenpeace. That sounds really interesting. Some other time we will talk more about that. But let's start our conversation about this fascinating book. And in the first pages, you talk about the death, the cult of death as an element that has been attached to the idea of Mexico and what Mexicans are this a special relationship with death and violence and you bring uh, to these pages the images of Jesus Malverde uh, bodies displayed uh, during the war on drugs and the celebrations of the day of the death how is this idea of violence and death and this construction in Mexico related to your research well when I started Doing the research on suicide, I was more interested in it as a social problem, but I was struck by the fact that there wasn't any kind of cavalier attitude towards death or towards these deaths by suicide among the young people in early 20th century Mexico. And even when I've taught taught history of Mexico, I've always asked students to kind of challenge their idea of what they see in the media, that Mexicans don't have a culture of violence. You know, they don't laugh and mock death like Octavio Paz might tell them that they do. And I just kind of wanted to challenge that kind of stereotype of Mexico and actually argue for more universalism with other cultures at the time. And just to give our listeners some context, uh, could you explain the role of modernization during the Porfirian era to understand how this relates to your analysis of suicide and youth, please? Yes, yes. So during the reign of Porfirio Diaz, um, there was a rapid uh, modernization project, especially in the built environment. So Mexico City, for example, had a major kind of built environment campaign of, you know, modern buildings and modern neighborhoods and housing. And theoretically, I think the idea was to modernize the citizenry as well. Um, But I don't I think they had stop stop gaps in that. But when it came to science and kind of looking at social problems, Porfirio Diaz um, hired a series of technocrats that would study the ills that kind of racked urban society in particular, but Mexico as a whole. And so you see these cadre of intellectuals and scientists that look at social problems like murder and suicide and poverty and loose morality and that type of thing related to urbanization and, and the modern world. And uh, during your your book, you explore the Porfirian era and uh, the changes in the uh, after the Mexican Revolution. 
do you think this idea of modernization that you just explained changed after the revolution? No, I think they actually had the same impulse. Um, but for the revolutionary period and the revolutionary intellectuals or the institutionalized um, government, I think they looked anew again at citizenry and they wanted to kind of create the model revolutionary citizen, you know, the, like the post-revolution citizen of Mexico. But they, like the Porfirians, were interested in things like morality and poverty and, and race, even though they, they you know, attempted to race, erase the idea of race legally as well. Yeah, and, and how morality and this scientific thought is constructed uh, lead us to your first uh, chapter. And you opened that chapter telling us that statistics convince and confuse. And they are useful to legitimize and communicate the modern achievements of Mexico to the world. So I think that's that's important, how you put Mexico as part of a... a a constant communication to what is happening to the world. And you tell us about moral statistics that propose that external factors more than individual free will are the responsible for suicide and murder. What did you find with these statistics and why calling them moral statistics? Well, it was, it was an idea that was borrowed from the French, you know, like a lot of the other scientific ideas brought to Mexico by Mexican doctors, surgeons, intellectuals that studied in France, and then they came back to Mexico. I don't want to say that they didn't kind of tweak some of these theories and, and develop original kind of Mexican ideas about social problems, but they were, it was kind of a two-fold uh, process in that to record so-called moral statistics And those would be things like crime, murder, robbery rates, um, all types of statistics related to not the physical environment, but the human environment and human behavior. It actually put them in the rank of modern nations because all modern nations did exactly the same thing in the United States, Germany, Austria, London, Paris, they re recorded moral statistics. But it, it also gave governments kind of this legitimate tool or this legitimate authority to be able to study social problems and to attempt to affect change in their society. And this is statistics I uh, could read, and I think our listeners, when they read the book, will find uh, information about seasons, motives of suicide, and methods that were registered by these uh, statistics. Can you tell us a little bit more about those elements that you analyzed? Yes. And so scientists or social scientists wanted to find patterns in suicide. And the idea, of course, was to just have the knowledge of how, why suicide occurred um, by gender, age, and class, but also at what times of the year. Um, this was a common with other countries as well, other sociologists and intellectuals in Europe and the United States. But their idea they didn't really do much with with that material but it was really like make doing the studies for the sake of knowledge and so for example they found that it wasn't around holiday times for example that mexicans committed committed suicide it was during different times when they maybe have been more alienated from workers and family um times a day mattered in that men would commit suicide more often after the workday, which could be quite late in the evening. 
or during the siesta time when they might have been home and had some private time um, to commit the deed. And it was the same for women. It was usually during the day hours um, of, of the siesta. And it seemed like the siesta time was a time when people could get a little privacy to actually take the poison or, or pull out the revolver and, and end their lives. Um, seasons as well. I mean, there were some patterns. I don't know if it's that statistically significant, but the dry, um, hot periods of the seasons seemed there were more suicides. And the methods uh, d during your book, you constantly bring a class and gender to the conversation. For the methods of suicide, what are the major differences reported for men and women? Um, more often for men, it would be the revolver or, you know, by gunfire, by gun or pistol, if they could had access to a gun. And many did. Um, soldiers had access, police officers, and then, of course, the wealthy But guns were much more common throughout society than I expected. Um, but when men didn't have a revolver, they might take poison, which was the most common method used by women. And even though there's many cyanides and kind of mercury or arsenic poisons, a lot of the poisons used were just regular household chemicals that would have been in the home. You know, rat poisons and such, or cleaning, um, cleaning and caustic agents that were also poisonous to women. Now, it was thought that women didn't really want to kill themselves, and that's why they used poison. I mean, there was kind of editorials about this, that women chose like the weak way, that the way that might not be so final. But in reality, that's what they had access to. And that, that's what I argue, is that many, many women were very successful at achieving the deed. And it wasn't that they were like seeking attention, you know, from family members to save them at the last moment. Moving on to the second chapter, I think that's uh, one of the most rich chapters because you talk about the body and yes. the display of the body and the vast array of interpretations of one single body. It's something that you call the self-conscious suicide that was methodologically planned for death. And you have like different stages and different views on this body, but Why can't uh, we start by talking about how people prepare themselves and what are the reasons they were preparing their bodies as such for suicide? Yes. I mean, I argue that men and women, and I, I found this more often than not, that there were steps that they would take towards their final end. And that would be, you know, even the poorest, um, you know, the, the person with the least amount of wealth would carefully prepare their body by taking a shower or going to the public baths, putting on the best clothes that they owned. Um, it seemed that young women in particular, and they may have worked in like the cinema or had some lower level um, jobs in the city, they would also put on their finest petticoat and silk stockings, quaff their hair, wear a hat, but also prepare the eventual scene by perhaps having letters wrapped in a, a nice ribbon or having you know perfume bottles that would, they would leave around their body as well. And men did the same. They put on their finest suit if they had one. Um, they may commit suicide in a, in a rented car. Well, that was another kind of symbol of status that you could actually rent a car to take you from place to place. Um, but there was like this careful preparation of the body. It's almost like they, that some, I wouldn't argue that all, but that some thought about how their body would be read as a text after death. And they wanted to control that narrative in the newspaper and perhaps by those that perform the autopsy, that they are respectable. 
that they were clean and that please, they also hoped that their bodies would not receive the autopsy or receive the scalpel if they could help it. And in, in, in this sense, you, you talk about this journey, if I can call it this way, from corpse to cadaver and mm -hmm. how this uh, different uh, gazes on it, like the press or the forensic gaze or even the burial of the body is attaching different meanings or different narratives. Let's start by the forensic gaze because we will talk a little bit more about the press eventually. What was the meaning or the uh, meanings attached to a body that had committed suicide by the doctors? The doctors, I think, approached the body in, in many ways. They, they approached it in a very, very clinical way, you know, by, by examining parts of the body, you know, starting at looking at the body as a whole and looking for the most obvious wounds or sign, signs on the body or the clothes for a gunshot or a suicide by hanging. They needed to make sure that it was not a homicide, but it was a suicide. So they had to make some kind of determinations about that. But they also made pretty direct moral judgments about that suicide as well. And even in some of the forensic reports, when they're being very clinical, they're also making some suppositions about class as well, and maybe even occupation, because they also did look at the hands to see if the person was a manual laborer or at the women, women's fingernails, you know, to see maybe if she did a job that required labor, like a laundress and such. Um, but they did have that very clinical approach as well, and that they had a very um, prescribed method of performing the autopsy. You know, they basically had to open up the cranium and peer into that brain. And at this time, they thought maybe lesions, um, they could see lesions on a brain that could predict suicidal or mental illness. Um, but they were usually <laughs> didn't find any such signs at all. But they took, you know, a meticulous time and kind of performing an autopsy on that body and even taking the organs out of that body. And if in, in the case of poisoning, they wanted to determine the exact poison that was used to, for the cause of death. And in, in that case, I would like just to stop a little bit on one of the examples you give in the conclusions of this chapter, Santana's leg, for instance, how these parts of the body get a particular meaning. Can you just tell us about that? Because I think it would be interesting for the listeners. Yes. I mean, I think in terms of the, the suicide that kills themselves and becomes the corpse, I mean, they are very, very interested in making sure that their body stays intact, stays a whole before they go into their burial resting place. Um, they didn't really write in their letters or, or the testimonies of the failed suicides. They didn't talk too much about that, like what they expected after death or after burial, but they expected that their body remain intact as a whole. Um, now, the doctors looking into the body, I mean, I would say they kind of fetishize the brain as a as a possible place to kind of look for mental illness or the reasons that a suicide or a young woman or young man would be driven to take their own life. Um, but in Ma Mexican society and Latin American society as well, there is this power in the body. And even like you mentioned Santa Ana, I mean, when, when, I mean, his leg was, <laughs> I mean, that was not only his, um, what do you call it? A prosthesis leg that still exists in the United States and Illinois. I mean, there was, he basically dug up his own leg that he lost in the pastry war 
in 1830s Veracruz, dug it up and took it with great pomp and circumstance to Mexico City and reburied it into a cemetery there. And we also think of, I mean, think of Ava Perón's body in Argentina. You know, she, her body, her corpse, cadaver, whatever you want to call it, traveled all around the world and came back to Argentina and then was dug up again and taken out of Argentina and hidden and, and vice versa. But there's just a lot of meaning in the body. In the body. I don't think it's just Latin American because I think we have cases in the United States like this too. And talking about the body and the final destiny of it, the, the burial of the body, what happened in a moment where there was this fight between the state and the Catholic Church? How was it uh, conceived that uh, the body of a person that committed suicide, what were the different morals between the state Uh, the Catholic Church and the places to rest, uh, to put this place, these bodies to rest. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a that's a great question. Um, historically, in the Catholic Church, I mean, from very early on, it was you could not bury a suicide on sacred ground. But in reality, we know, and, and Zeb Tortorici for Colonial New Spain has found this that there was actually a priest that committed suicide, and he was buried in 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 sacred ground because the priest discovered what they read on his body was that he had a last moment of regret and tried to loosen the noose from his neck, but was unsuccessful. So I, I, I want to say that the church was against suicides being in sacred ground, but there's always this difference between practice and, and theory or law. But in the secular state, I mean, the move was basically to move burial to a, a purely secular and, and civil process, you know, to take it out of the church hands altogether partly for public hygiene reasons, but also this is the, the period of liberalism where everything needed to be secularized, including marriage, burial, um, whatever, and, and death, death rites in particular. Um, but I, I, I would just want to emphasize for the listeners, though, that there's been a lot of really good research that shows that even in the medieval period, which we um, consider to be quite harsh when it comes to um, sanctions against people that committed so-called sins, is that we find examples of, you know, the community members in particular, like kind of enforcing the burial of their loved ones in sacred ground or church grounds. And that uh, brings me to uh, thinking about some of the cases that you described. And one of your uh, important sources was the press. How mm -hmm. was the press uh, displaying suicides and how they were informing the public or the readers or those that consume these images during the Porphyrian era. You talk about a romanticization of uh, suicide? Yes. I thought it was very interesting and it seems somewhat contradictory for there to be this romanticization of the suicide, especially the female suicide during the Porphyriato and even the early years of the revolution. Um, it's almost like they're kind of hearkening back to Greek times or more ancient times where a woman um, could, you know, commit suicide instead of being dishonored or violated by a man or even for love or political martyrs like we would think of in Cuban history in particular. But the press, I think with this advent of modern sensational journalism and, and the use of first sketches and then eventually photographs, And it, it actually, even if you look at the crime section of Mexico today, it's often, there's lots of bodies, right? 
um, bodies of car wrecks, bodies of homicides, that type of thing. But I think that this started in the Porphyrian era where they were kind of fetishizing the broken body in a way, but also romanticizing the female broken body, especially especially if she appeared to be elite or in, or in the aspiring middle class. Um, but at the same time, gosh, it attracted readers, right? People wanted to kind of eat up, you know, that sensationalism and, and, and read about these kind of morbid stories or the, the story of the young woman who had migrated from the countryside, hoping to find riches and a better life in the city, but found her hopes dashed and then she commits suicide. It seems like that's a familiar trope in the newspaper about hopes and aspirations dashed that resulted in suicide. And there is this interesting clue that you give us and develop there. And you tell us that readers expected journalists not only to report the facts of crime, but also seek justice. How was yeah. this relationship constructed? Yes, I mean, it's, it's very interesting because they, they report and they seek justice. And in between, many of these reporters, especially like for Imparcial and other major circulating newspapers, the journalists were acting like forensic investigators. I mean, they're investigating scenes and scoping out scenes and reporting and actually saying that maybe the police were wrong in their, in their estimations of whether it was a homicide or a suicide and who's actually responsible. But I think that, you know, this, this is a later period than Pablo Picasso's book, The Tyranny of Opinion. But I still think it's that era where journalists thought that they really were arbiters of public opinion and they were there to kind of morally protect the public sphere and, you know, the honor of that public and that society. Even though at the same time, they're not always debating politics like they were in an early era and getting into duels over, you know, fights between liberals and conservatives or dishonoring of their own reputation. They're now defending this public reputation of the state, or at least the city. And you developed a little bit more about the role of the press in your third, on your third chapter, Media Moral, Moral Panic and Youth Suicide. And I think it is interesting that at the beginning, in some of the first pages, you tell us that at the turn of the century, Mexico had one of the lowest suicide rates in the world. However, the media messages seem to show that suicides were rising at an alarming rate every day in Mexico. Why was that? It is just why because suicides were selling more papers or what was happening there? Well, I, I thought maybe at first it was really just about selling newspapers. And I thought, okay, this is sensational kind of yellow journalism. But when I read studies of Russia in Paris, and even some studies about the U.S. South and um, other parts of the world, it seemed like this was a common, it was like a theme, or it was like almost like a trend in that newspapers reported on suicide epidemics that weren't really happening. Um, but they were using suicide and this supposed re rising tide of suicide, especially among the youth, and especially for women in, in Mexico, which, was, which is different than the rest of the world, probably mostly to kind of criticize the kind of nature of modernization going on around them or the urbanization. I think it was a larger social critique, you know, that late Porfiriato era and the early revolution, you know, with all the rapid changes in technology, you know, the, the waves of rural migrants coming into the city 
you know, poverty all around, the, the, the uh, chaos of the government transitions, the revolution, etc. I think that's in part one of the reasons. But I also think that at the same time, to say, hey, we're suffering a, a suicide epidemic, and especially our, our middle-class young men are suffering from neurasthenia, and our women are killing themselves for trivial reasons, but sometimes for, for dishonor, but we consider that romantic. It put them in the kind of rank of modern nations. I mean, it was like kind of like, see, look how modern we are. We are having a, a suicide epidemic because we are a nervous society, just like Paris or Vienna. And as part of these reports in, uh, on the newspapers, you tell us, and you use as a really, really intriguing and interesting source, the goodbye notes that people left behind. What do these sources tell us about the media and popular interpretations of suicide? <laughs> It's interesting often that the newspapers, if they somehow they got access to those notes. So obviously they were able to go into the police archive or the police record or the, or the file on the case and, and reprint those notes verbatim, or at least it seems verbatim. Um, but the suicide notes themselves, many are very simple and short, and they, and they say, no one was culpable for my death except myself, and please don't give me an autopsy. But there are quite a few others that kind of lamented, um, you know, lack of work or the hardship of life, but most commonly love. And they're playing on those, those same messages that are coming out in the newspapers about the 16-year-old girl that was spurned by her lover or her boyfriend, so she decided to kill herself. And so you kind of see that those kind of same romantic tropes being uh, narrated in, in some of the letters, both men and women, you know, young men and women in particular. And in the case of men, uh, it was interesting that you brought Uh, to the conversation that uh, losing a job or not having the possibilities to achieve their role as breadwinners was also a, a cause that they wrote down on these goodbye notes. Yes, they, they did. And I, I think that, and that also plays into some of the narratives of the newspaper reporting, is that it seems like the newspapers in the Mexican society, the readers really could identify with that narrative, the poor migrant that might have moved from, you know, the, the countryside into Mexico City to seek for, fame and fortune, if you want to call it that. But they were blocked and they had obstacles in their path along the way. And, and they, they basically died penniless, sometimes in, in a hotel room. Uh, it, it has been intriguing me since I, I read your book, how the uh, using these tropes or of love can be an umbrella to put in there, different interactions between men and women. You were talking before about honor or somebody being deceived or probably a, a, a woman that didn't accept uh, the romantic approach of a man. Mm -hmm. So what are all the interactions that we can find that the press just wrote as romantic interactions? Um, you, do see, you do see love triangles. So you do see... In particular with the men, in fact, I think one of the most interesting cases was two men committed suicide together <laughs> in a tavern. They basically took some poison and, you know, took down several gulps of tequila and then walked outside the tavern and they both went their separate ways, but like fell down on the street, like three blocks away and died. And it, they left a note and it came out from 
their notes, but also testimony of some of their fellow workers that they had loved the same woman. And the woman had left one man for the other and then come to find out she then left that man for another man and moved, you know, out of, out of state essentially. And so they commiserated over drinks, but it seems somewhat calculated that they both managed to have some kind of cyanide poisoning in order to kill themselves in this kind of suicide pact. Um, I mean, all the cases are, are fairly unique, but you do see, you do see, especially women that love was the number one, but men too. I mean, it, it really shows that Mexicans, and I think this isn't just Mexicans, this is just people of all nationalities wanted love. <laughs> they wanted love in their life. They, they, they believed in love and they were deep, hurt, deeply hurt when, you know, love went the wrong way as well. And just before moving on to the next chapter, now that you mentioned that double suicide, it is not the only one you reported on your book. I think there are at least another two examples. Was that a common or it was more spectacular for the readers? It, in, the, in the actual documents that survive in the judicial records, it's not common, but newspapers loved it. So there are several examples in the newspapers where they picked up on two women, for example, that married the same man. So they're, enga they're engaged in a, a bigamous marriage, and he actually has them both under the same roof eventually, and they commit suicide together. That's a 1920s case that, that has a large sketch that's also in the book. Um, the men, I just mentioned the tavern, and... The, then famously, when in the chapter on the public suicides or, or the role of the public in suicide, there's the two women at Chapultepec Park. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, so Pablo Picado is the series editor for uh, the, the press, you know, for the University of California. And he sent me an, a photograph of a woman hanging from a tree in Chapultepec Park in the 1970s. And I argue that, you know, Chapultepec Park, seem to be the site of suicide or like this destination for suicides. And it seems like that continued, or he, he thinks that maybe this shows that it, it has continued today or at least into the 1970s. Um, but it seems like there are, the press really picked up on the, on the suicide packs, but the police and the intellectuals that looked at this, they also tried to argue that it was an older girl basically forcing her friend, you know, to commit suicide with her. They always seemed to, seemed to thought it was a more devious leader, you know, a devious architect of the suicide that convinced a younger, um, more weak person to commit suicide with them. And uh, your next chapter bring, on, bring us again to the conversation of the medical interpretations and approaches to the phenomenon of suicide and how they changed from the Porphyrian era to the first decades after the revolution. And in this case, you bring a category of analysis that I think is really important. That is the idea of mental illness and suicide as social rather as individual problems. Mm -hmm. And you make this interesting gender distinction between hysteria and neurasthenia, but there are also class distinctions there. Can you help us understand what was uh, happening in these medical interpretations? Yes. And so neurasthenia was a nervous disorder. It seems somewhat invented, <laughs> but it was considered to be a mental disorder for men that was temporary and would go away with rest, relaxation, 
you know, maybe keeping busy with some work, but men suffered it because of the vagaries and the pressures of modern life. And so poor men didn't get neurasthenia, but middle class and elite men could get neurasthenia, but it could be cured, right? So it was like basically the disease of the modern world, kind of a badge of honor in many ways. Um, that is kind of what the, how the doctors viewed it, but sometimes the press ridiculed neurasthetic men as basically being wimps, right? Wimps that couldn't handle life or they were too vain that they would get nervous over their, you know, mustache, mustache, not curling, right. Or freckles on their face. You know, they would make fun of them. Hysteria on the other hand, I mean, that had a long history and there's been several books written about hysteria and women and gender and mental illness. But it was thought that women got hysteria, men got neurasthenia. In theory, but in the actual documents, I do see some women being diagnosed with neurasthenia or self-diagnosing with, with neurasthenia. Now, hysteria as a female mental illness had its roots in the womb or in the uh, female reproductive anatomy. And they thought, you know, especially early on, you know, in the porphyrio, uh, porphyrato in particular, they kind of took the French cue that that the women's the woman's womb or her ovaries or her reproductive system was the root of mental illness that was uniquely female. And sometimes it was, um, and then it would could manifest itself in you know strange sexual behavior too, according to doctors. Like strange in terms that they would call it promiscuity or or lesbianism or excessive masturbation, that type of thing. And eventually, your book is going to bring us to suicide, the relationship between suicide and public space. But before moving to that, just linking this to mental illness, you talk about La Castañeda. Mm -hmm. Can you tell our uh, listeners what La Castañeda was and what's the role it has in this modernization era and treating the suicide uh, problem? Right. So La Castañeda was... One of the crowning achievements of Porfirio Diaz and the Cientificos, it was inaugurated in 1910, right around the centennial. It was supposed to be this modern facility that could treat and rehabilitate mental patients, mental or patients suffering from mental illness. Um, it was inaugurated and celebrated with great fanfare. And the idea was not only would it provide a safe space for those that were clinically mentally ill. It also took in the, the, um, the mental, it also took in, um, uh, they called them imbeciles, essentially those that had, um, neurosyphilis that could never get better. So it had wings for people that would never, um, rehabilitate from their mental deficiencies as they called them. But the wing of La Castaneda that was most interesting for the suicide page, patients was that they thought that they could have treatments like water treatments and water baths, water immersion, fasting, different kinds of purgatives and laxatives that could, could, could cure them, essentially, and they could be released back into society with the doctor's vigilance. But at the same time, the medical school could um, did eventually develop an autopsy room in La Castaneda where they could do autopsies on the brain of mentally ill patients that died there. And so it was, it was to further science, but it was also to kind of sequester the mentally ill and supposedly rehabilitate them. But studies have shown that La Castaneda basically just became kind of a, a rat infested 
dirty, underfunded um, asylum to keep certain people off the street. And it is interesting how, like Castañeda, even when it, uh, the building doesn't exist anymore, it still remains in the imaginary of a lot of Mexicans as this relationship with mental illness. And that's why I would like to talk about the city and public spaces and the relationship with suicide. You were already talking about a Chapultepec Park, but also this a really interesting piece of information that you gave us that at the end of the 19th century, the tower of the Metropolitan Cathedral became known as the tower of uh, the suicides. Why was that? Well, so the pra my pragmatic brain says it was probably the highest place you could jump from <laughs> and have an effective suicide. But after I kind of got into the documents more, I realized that there were other places that they could jump, jump from that were just as effective, like the post office building or, you know, the third floor of a, of, of a, of a patio in a, in a convent or something like that. But I think some, I, I, I make the case now, now certainly the majority of suicides were not by jumping off the tower, but it was common enough that they decided to have essentially guards at the doorway to the tower um part of that was to and then girls for example couldn't go up there by themselves they had to be accompanied or chaperoned but there were guards essentially that kind of watched the situation and um you know the last thing they wanted was a scandal of somebody jumping off you know the parapet or off the off the tower but symbolically i you know it's it was those suicides were received multiple days of, of coverage in the newspapers. And there's one case in particular in 1899, right at the cusp of the new century where people were really worried about moving into the 20th century from the 19th. And it seems like there were a series of suicides in 1899 that were reported. And a couple were from the tower of the suicides. And the journalists would comment about, it was Sophia Ahumada who jumped off the tower and landed so close to the resting place where they had excavated the Aztec sunstone. So the journalists made these kind of connections between the so-called sacrifice stones of the Aztecs and the, and the place of the Aztecs and the suicides that jumped from the tower. Now, in certain minds, people reading this type of thing, I mean, it, there are people that want to have a sensational death. And to jump from a tower would be certainly a sensational death right there at the Zocalo in front of a lot of foot traffic but also symbolically the, you know, the head metropolitan church of the Catholic church. And you also tell us that uh, women used uh, this tower of suicides more often than men and few residents committed suicide in public spaces, but still they gain a lot of attention. Do you think it has to do because of the female um, ingredient for the new story or it's the same for men and women what did you find in your sources well i only there was only one mention of a man that jumped from the tower and they didn't really cover cover it so he was just referred to and he was referred to his name juan lopez i think was the name and his death or his jump from the tower was referred to in another um, person's jump And that jump, of course, they went on at length for days and days. And she was the woman, Sofia Ahumada, in 1899. 
they didn't quite make that connection between a woman's rel- religiosity and, and the Catholic Church or choosing this kind of Catholic or sacred space to initiate that death leap. And, and I didn't really go there myself too much to speculate because I, I started to, but then I felt a little uncomfortable. Um, so what I mostly commented was the press's fascination with that female suicide off that, you know, that pinnacle of, of, of the Catholic religion in Mexico City. And in, uh, on your last chapter, you talk about the stance of bluff, talking about these graphic representations and how they stayed uh, in certain um, places of the city, on the sidewalks or uh, these places where suicide was committed were visited by the passersby or by the inhabitants of Mexico City to contemplate the, stre- the stains of blood or to put flowers and mementos. Mm-hmm. How did you interpret that? You uh, provide some pictures on the book about, I would say, a quite large of people actually mm-hmm. gathering there. Yes. So I noticed in some of the early reporting that journalists would comment on the so-called vagrants that gathered at the stain of blood. I mean, they were like impugning, you know, the, the loiterers essentially that were like gazing voyeuristically at a stain of blood. But then in the subsequent reporting, I noticed that there would be crowds, like you mentioned, when we have photography in the newspapers. But, but for me, the way I interpreted that was, you know, first of all, that shows Yes, there may have just been curiosity, kind of like rubber neckers at a car wreck, you know, passing on a highway. But when you leave mementos or you draw that cross on the wall where somebody died, I think it means more than that. It's somewhat like a roadside memorial today when you that you might see along a, a highway or some of the um, memorials in Mexico to different, you know, narco deaths and that type of thing. People are publicly and, and vernacularly memorializing that death, but at least stopping to kind of reflect, you know, reflect on the loss of, loss of that life. I thought it said a lot about Mexican society. It certainly refutes that, that notion that Mexicans are so used to death that it doesn't impact them, or that as a society they would just walk by nonchalantly and not give it another thought. But in Mexico, I think I also commented in that last chapter about Some of the young deaths, people would just join the funeral procession and just walk along all the way to, you know, the Dolores uh, Cemetery on the outskirts of city, of the city. Um, I think it shows that the state and the press wanted death and dying not to be a public affair unless they're a statesman that, that's, you know, there's public eulogies to a, a statesman that dies and then a, and then a, a, a public procession to a a very fancy interment in the cemetery with its mausoleum and such. But I think it shows that people continue to kind of memorialize death in public places, even though the state didn't want them to. The memorials were ephemeral, you know, but they existed. And, and you see glimpses of them in the, in the newspapers and some of the documents. I was actually surprised to find that. I was, I was glad that I did because it, it, it just shows that, you know, that de- people the societies can experience death collectively and they can mourn collectively as well. And I think you just paved the way for the last question in regards to your book. And it's one of, I want to 
talk a little bit more about an idea you have in one of the last pages. You tell us that Anthony Giddens theorizes that modern nation states have a monopoly on violence, and you argue that nation states have a monopoly of death as well. Can you tell us more about this idea and how it related to the way Mexicans approach death, particularly suicide, during the period you studied? Yes. Um, so in part, I was arguing against Claudio Lomnitz. Is, um, he wrote a book called The Death and, Death and the Idea of Mexico. And I think he makes some really great points about how death has become a national totem of Mexico, especially after the revolution. But a lot of his argument is about Mexican state having a uniquely authoritative and powerful control over death. And my argument is more for universalism in that all states manage or want to manage and control death, including how people die, you know, how they're buried you know, how mourning can occur, you know, hopefully in private, in modern nations, certainly not public displays of mourning. Um, and so I'm, I'm really kind of arguing against that that's a uniquely Mexican totem, so to speak, that it's really a totem, if you want to call it that, of, of all modern states. Because in some ways, to control death is to control feeling and, and public affect, and ultimately to attempt to control society. Um, but in a beautiful way, people resist that control and that they continue to kind of experience death in their own way as well. Well, this has been really, really a fascinating conversation. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I think um, you led us with a lot of questions. And uh, for the listeners, if you have questions, just read the book, please. <laughs> and uh, just to finish our conversation can you tell us more uh can you tell us more can you tell us something about any other project you are working on now yes yes so i'm leaving administrative work um this summer and i'm on sabbatical in the fall so i'll be back in mexico um in the archives and i have a couple projects um i, I am very interested in the history of family and children and women And it probably won't be a book project, but I've come across a lot of references to Roba. Let's see if I, I can never get, can't trill my R so great, but Roba Chicos are these kidnapping rings. Yeah. So I have a couple, I have, I'm working on that um, as, a, again, this moral panic about the kidnapping of children in modern society. But at the same time, I'm also working, especially in the, the teaching realm, on, on working on animal histories of Mexico. I've done quite a, quite a bit of research on, Mex on bullfighting in particular, and, you know, spent a lot of time in New York, or not the New York, uh, the Los Angeles Public Library, where they have a large bullfighting collection. So we'll see. I've been in administration for a long time, so I need to get full time back into research again. Both sound like fascinating projects, and I wish you the best of luck in the archives. Like, we historians enjoy that time a lot, and I hope you will enjoy that time. Uh, well, Catherine, it was a pleasure having you on the show today. I really want to thank you for uh, being with us and sharing your research. Thank you so much, Pamela. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>